This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is my pleasure to in- introduce back to uh, the podium again at this conference for, I don't know, the third or fourth time, Elliot, uh, Dr. Elliot Schur, speaking on a neurologist's perspective of the differential diagnosis of autism. And Elliot, as many of you know, is a professor of neurology and pediatrics and with the Institute of Human Genetics. Dr. Schur. Okay, let's see if I can make this work. Okay, those are my disclosures. Um, and so in, in 29 minutes, I'm going to um, answer the question, what is autism, what causes autism, what looks like autism, how do we investigate, how and when can we treat, and how to get to Tahiti as quickly as possible. So I'm going to touch on all of these topics um, and, and see if, it, if I can provide um, a perspective that will hopefully be complementary to Dr. Leventhal's um, that will follow. So, you know, as, as somebody who um, um, had the pleasure or not of majoring in philosophy as an undergraduate, you know, we always talked about the null hypothesis, right? So that's the thing that you're trying to disprove. Um, but if you can't disprove it, then, that's, then, that's, then that might be true. So maybe autism doesn't exist. So that's, that's the first question. Um, and then it's mirror image, if you, know, if you have um, uh, a different idea, is that autism is a singular biological entity. And obviously both of these are straw men um, to get you to think about the fact that autism is a collection of conditions that have some shared clinical features. And um, one sort of simplistic way of thinking about this is um, at the top, um, you have the clinical manifestations, and those are um, supported or caused by um, a number of different layers that contribute to that final clinical phenotype that you're observing in your patient, right? So one, one whole group is the kinds of clinical phenotypes that are revealed by standardized clinical assessments, so something like an ADOS or an IQ test shed light on what you're observing as a clinician. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but there is a, a developing field that's looking at, at biomarkers, so other surrogates for the final diagnosis. Um, obviously, one of the things that I'm going to talk zero about, but I think is probably incredibly important, is gene-by-environment interactions. And then finally, something I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, but you've probably heard a lot about um, in the news, are what we would call the primary causes of some cases of autism. And it turns out that some of the cases of autism have single causes or, or highly penetrant causes. Okay. So if we think about the overall etiologies of autism, um, this is sort of my breakdown of what I think um, is the likely set of conditions. Um, And so idiopathic polygenic, so what we would call kind of a 
you know, a typical autistic kid, um, that's going to make up about 50%. And again, I think that it's polygenic, but probably also has other roles, uh, other etiologies. And then I'm going to talk today more about the top 20%, the, the ones that we would call syndromic um, or monogenic, um, meaning a single gene that's highly penetrant that doesn't present in a syndromic way, but it just presents clinically as autism and nothing else. Okay. So as a neurologist, um, I'm called upon not to make a clinical diagnosis of autism, although that happens sometimes, but I'm typically asked to help out to answer the question, is there a single genetic cause or biochemical cause or brain anatomic uh, cause that leads to autism and or other clinical symptoms. And um, one of the main goals of this kind of differential, this kind of investigation, is to make it as efficient as possible. So if I tested every kid with autism with the full battery of tests at my disposal, I would probably have a low yield on those tests. And some of those tests would have a yield as low as 1% or even less than that. And so when it gets to that level of, of a yield, you begin to wonder whether it has any utility. Um, but rather, what I'm going to show you here in this slide, and, and this is actually kind of like a springboard for the rest of the talk, is can you use your clinical skills to enhance that yield? So can you identify the kids that are much more likely to have single gene or other single biochemical or other causes. And so what I've done here is I've tried to outline some of those things that I'm going to look at. So one of them that I think is very, very important is regression. So meaning that a child clearly had language, clearly had social interactions, and then lost them. Now, there's a, there's a kind of autism where people say it's regression, where they have a few words around a year of age and then they lose them. I'm leaving that out because I think that that's a, probably a different biological process. But I'm talking about the kid who, at three years of age or two and a half years of age, who had a couple hundred words, starts losing them. That's when you pick up the phone and call me that day. Um, Another term that we like to use, but it's kind of like an overused term, but encephalopathy. So is the kid, you know, alert and interactive, or does the kid seem kind of zoned out? And if, and if the latter is true, that could be concerning for a number of different reasons. Obviously, if the child is having seizures or other neurologic manifestations, that should also trigger this kind of an evaluation. Um, Things like spasticity or actual weakness, not just hypotonia, but true weakness, or if the weakness is asymmetric, right? So one side, hemiparesis, one side is weaker than the other. Um, exam findings, things like uh, dysmorphic features or changes in the head size should also trigger um, an evaluation by a neurologist. Um, and then the other one um, is involvement of other functional systems. So if the kid has um, lung malformations or has, um, you know, a heart condition, those are other things that make you think maybe there is a, um, a, 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 a metabolic or a genetic cause that underlies all of those conditions in sort of Occam's razor as a unified whole. 
And then also, even though there can be positive family histories in idiopathic autism, I think if there's a positive family history that that also requires a, a genetic evaluation. Okay. So keep all of that in mind as we move along here. Um, and so now that you have those tools, you can then sort of use that information to decide who's going to come see a child neurologist. And if they come to see me, what am I going to do? Well, you know, it's like basically saying if you have a carpenter and he has hammers and nails, what is he going to do? He's, you know, going to use them. And so as a neurologist, I'm going to use the tools that are at my disposal besides, obviously, a careful examination and history taking. I'm going to use other tools to arrive at a diagnosis. And I've listed some of these here. Um, you know, um, a first pass... So if, if you look at the guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology or the American Academy of Pediatrics on evaluating a kid with neurodevelopmental disorders writ large, not just autism, but sort of all neurodevelopmental disorders, um, that includes a brain MRI. It includes some basic genetic testing, which I've listed here, microarray and fragile X. Um, oftentimes, but not always, depending on the judgment of the clinician, it involves biochemical evaluations um, and um, can also, depending on the patient, for instance, if there's encephalopathy or regression, one of the things that you should be thinking about are um, abnormal electrical activity that may not present as a seizure um, overtly, but may actually cause regression. Okay. And all of these, as you see, lead to referrals of specialists, whether that be a child neurologist or my colleagues in genetics who run um, an exome clinic, um, and I'll talk about exomes in just a moment, or um, a referral to a metabolic specialist um, if there are metabolic concerns. Okay, so here are just three simple examples of brain imaging that if you found this, you would... In, in a kid that had impaired cognition, you would go down a very different pathway in terms of working that kid up. Now, you still might want to treat that child's behavior with behavioral intervention or with medication, but there are other things that you would want to do as well. So the first one here is um, an example called X-link adrenaleukodystrophy. Um, this is a rare condition, um, but it presents in early um, school-aged children with loss of cognitive milestones. That's the sort of the hallmark of this condition. Behavioral changes, loss of, loss of developmental skills. Um, and that should trigger an immediate evaluation by a neurologist because if I catch this sort of at the phase that's shown here with these white areas in the back of the head... Um, then that child would be eligible for a bone marrow transplantation, which would arrest the progression of the disease. Um, if you don't do that, then the child can progress to basically a very, very severe case of spastic cerebral palsy with, with profound impairment in cognition. This now is being screened for in the newborn blood spots um, as of literally just this week, so we'll start to pick these kids up early, and we'll follow them along, and then right as they're starting to show these symptoms, because to make life complicated, not everyone with a genetic condition goes on to have the clinical disease, we will then intervene with um, a bone marrow transplantation. 
Here's another example. So this is a little bit subtler. Again, this, these, are, these are axial images. So this is the front of the head. This is the back. This is the right side and the left side of the brain. You can see this kind of fuzzy white area here. Um, and you had Dr. Uh, Joe Sullivan earlier in the day, and I'm sure that he probably talked about focal cortical dysplasias. This is a very, very common cause of seizures, but its location in the frontal lobe can also have behavioral consequences. Um, and if a child is seizing subclinically, meaning you're not observing them having physical movements, but just maybe spacing out, um, removing that lesion is, all, is frequently uh, curative, 100% curative, um, and can cause those, those behavioral problems to, to stop and for you know, developmental progress to ensue once again. And then this is another example. This is a child that I took care of who um, had um, a in utero stroke um, and presented, as I said, with hemiparesis, but he also presented clinically with features that were consistent with autism. So even though it was, it was motivated or caused by this anatomic change, it's something that we would want to know because that's going to change how we work him up. It turns out that he also had a heart condition, um, and so that he, he really needed uh, the attention of lots of specialists. Okay. And then here I've listed um, just a few different causes, um, and obviously given the time constraints, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I just want to talk about the top two here. So the first one is, is phenylketonuria, or PKU, and probably all of you have heard about PKU. It's a, it's a de defect in an enzyme that metabolizes the amino acid phenylalanine, and um, in, in the days prior to newborn screening, these children would present with seizures, intellectual disability, and autism, as well as um, pigmentary changes because of the phenylalanine uh, conversion into uh, melanin. Um, but we don't see that anymore because um, in the United States, all newborns are uh, screened with a blood spot, um, and that's sent to a state lab. And in California, we test for um, or California and most of the rest of the country, we test for 50 different conditions w with that newborn blood spot. Um, but as you can see, it's quite variable. There's only 12 tests in Germany, two in the United Kingdom, and many countries around the world don't test for PKU. And so a child with PKU could still show up in your clinic um, and could be significantly helped by being put on, on diet that's restricting phenylalanine. And then there's another um, deficiency. Again, this is also not common. It's called arginase deficiency. It's a, a disorder of the urea cycle, so the way that um, the body metabolizes excess nitrogen. Um, and kids who have this deficiency present initially as normally, but then they start to regress um, when they're toddlers. And they develop loss of cognitive and motor skills, and they develop um, a spastic uh, presentation. So again, something that should prompt a more aggressive evaluation. Okay, so I think that Dr. Sullivan um, may have already talked a little bit about this. There's a new technique called whole exome sequencing, and what this is is this is the latest, greatest tool, um, and what it allows us to do is to sequence most of the genes and most of the letters in most of the genes all at once. 
So in the, in the old days, if I had a specific hypothesis about, let's just say, Tay-Sachs disease, I could draw blood from the patient and send it to a laboratory, and they could sequence the gene hexosaminidase that causes Tay-Sachs and see whether the mutation was there or not. But now, instead of just doing one gene at a time, or if there was, you know, five or ten genes in a panel, I can do over 20,000 genes simultaneously looking for mutations that might account for my patient's symptoms. And it turns out that in about 10 to 20 percent of autism patients, as well as other kids with developmental disabilities, that there is a, a new change. And the, the term for that new change is de novo. So de novo mutations. And so you know, you have two alleles, one from your mom and one from your dad. And what's depicted here is that when this chromosome is passed from either the sperm or the egg into the developing embryo, that this gene that's green and so functioning normally acquires by this little thunderbolt here a mutation. So a sing, oftentimes a single letter of DNA will change, and that change alone is sufficient to cause the symptoms, whether those symptoms are idiopathic autism by clinical appearance or autism plus epilepsy or autism plus cerebral palsy. All of these combinations can be caused, depending on where it happens, by literally a single change, a single letter of DNA being mutated. Okay. So there are companies that do this kind of testing, and, and um, you know, I don't want to advertise any particular company, but if you email me, I can send you a list of different ones, and you can pursue them yourselves. Um, but I'm going to give you some reports to highlight what these kinds of tests can give us in terms of information. Okay, so the first one is um, a case where we find a known syndrome. So a child presented to my clinic, and he had irritability that was pretty severe, was also had autism, and had had a few seizures, but not enough to be um, on any seizure medication. And we did this genetic test, and we found a mutation in a gene that's called GRIN2B. So here is the protein consequence of this change. Here's the cDNA or the DNA consequence, and then here is their report saying that it's de novo, meaning that it's not in either mom or dad's DNA, um, but, and their interpretation, the laboratories, is that it is what's causing this child's symptoms. And um, what is um, GRIN2B? Actually, let me just go back for a sec. GRIN2B is um, a, a receptor for glutamate on nerve cells. So many, many millions of nerve cells respond to the excitatory stimulation of glutamate um, in, in the nervous system, and when that is inappropriately regulated, you can get cognitive and behavioral problems as well as epilepsy. And what I'm showing you here is a drug that's called memantine, and it can, in certain cases, block the pathological activation of these receptors. So a drug that was not designed for this purpose can actually be used to ameliorate both the behavior somewhat um, and the seizures um, that these children experience. So by having a specific diagnosis, I can target my therapies. Okay. 
Sometimes we, when we do these tests, we find something new. And so this is an example of another patient of mine who had a mutation in a gene called DDX3X. Now, you know, gene names are often cumbersome, and so I apologize. Just the thing to remember is that it's on the X chromosome. And so it turns out um, there was a paper literally that came out like a week or two before I got these results back. Um, so we were right plugged in with when this was happening. Um, and I took this information to the family, and they reached out to other families that have children, um, and these are almost all girls, have young girls that are affected with autism and intellectual disability. Um, and they went together and formed a foundation um, and a support group, and this is the front page of that group, that's called ddx3x.org. Um, and this is not the only case where this has happened. This is actually happening in dozens or even maybe now a, a hundred or more um, specific genetic syndromes around the country and around the world. Families are aggregating together and trying to um, promote you know, either clinical or basic science research on their children's conditions to advance our knowledge and to come up with better treatments. So that's an example where, you know, you can see already that there's 95 known cases, um, 66 people are registered. They're just getting started, um, but I think that they'll have a lot of success. They have the people, the families running this are, are highly motivated. Okay. And then another thing that you find out um, is something called incidental findings. And so there are approximately 50 genes that a lot of very, very clinically savvy geneticists decided should always be um, on these tests and should always be returned as reports to patients. Um, and you can opt out as a family. You can check a box saying, I don't want that kind of information. But if you don't do that, they'll report it to you. Um, and as you can see here, the gene is BRCA1. So BRCA1, one of the leading causes of breast cancer that's known genetically. Um, and you can see here that there's a known pathogenic mutation and that it's present in my patient. Um, he's a male and young, so he's not at risk right now, but there are things that will have to be done for him. But his mom also was a carrier of that mutation. And so um, it turned out that um, the mom's mother had died of breast cancer as a young woman, um, and she hadn't, it was always in the back of her mind to get tested, but had never gone through it. And this information obviously pushed her um, to finally getting properly evaluated. And so I think that, you know, in an incidental way, we provided this family with a lot of valuable information. Okay. So in, a, in addition to some of these genes that I've just talked about, you've probably all heard of some of the more common or syndromic cases um, that are associated with autism. And I've list sort of three of the more um, well-described. They've been, they've been around longer, and they've been around longer simply because um, they are syndromic. So they have physical features or other medical features that allow you to identify them. Um, and so I've listed three of them here, fragile X. Obviously, that mostly occurs in males. They have physical features. They have a, a long face and large ears, um, a tall forehead with a pointy chin, 
Um, um, as they get older, they have macroorchidism, um, and many of these individuals um, have autism um, and intellectual disability. And Rett syndrome, as you know, is a, is a condition that shows up mostly in, in girls um, and, again, presents with um, more of a, a regressive or progressive picture where they have um, stunted growth of their heads um, and they have a number of sort of typical um, behavioral manifestations or physical movements. And then finally, tuberous sclerosis. Um, is another condition that can be associated with autism, both in cases where you have severe epilepsy and in other cases where the TS does not result um, in epilepsy but just has behavioral changes. And then I've listed below here two different categories. Um, With the kinds of broad-based genetic tools that I've told you about, There are labs across the country, and actually um, one of them uh, here, Matt State and Stefan Sanders in the Department of Psychiatry, have pushed forward um, this advance where they've taken many thousands of individuals who all have autism and tested to see what kinds of genetic changes they had. And by doing it in such a large number, they could get the kind of statistical evidence that they needed to be able to say definitively that those genes or those genetic changes lead to autism. And I've listed some of them here. Um, These are some chromosomal regions. And then here are um, a list of uh, single genes. And I just want to highlight that these, the, the one that I just told you earlier, DDX3X, is going to be more common, we think, than all of these. Um, 16P11.2, again, was not found until people started using these uh, microarrays, these broad-based tools of looking across the whole genome. And this probably accounts for a full 1% of autism. Um, So, uh, again, an an important condition to to better understand. And so that's what I want to you know, close with here in in the next couple minutes is just to tell you that um, my lab and a few other labs around the country have recruited um, many dozen individuals who have this genetic change on chromosome 16, and we've started to look at both their behavioral manifestations, which we kind of outline here, um, as well as some of these biomarkers that I was telling you about. And so... Right up here is, um, these are very funny looking images, but basically these are fancy MRIs that are uh, using a tool called diffusion tensor imaging to map out the strength of connections in different parts of the brain. And if, just to sort of color code it for you, Um, If it's in yellow, it means that there's a deficiency in the connections. Um, And if it's in blue, it means that there's an increase. And it turns out that if you carry the deletion on this region, so you only have one copy, not two, that you have too few connections or these connections aren't strong enough. And that if you have the duplication, you actually have the inverse you have too many connections. And so there are other people who have reported similar findings in idiopathic autism where over or under connectivity can be a part of the picture of autism, but we were able to see that very, very cleanly 
by using these genetically defined um, conditions. Um, and there's one other um, thing that we saw here. Again, this is um, something called um, an M100. So when you hear sound, it takes about 100 milliseconds for that sound to go through your ears, up into your brainstem, and into the part of the cortex uh, that, that perceives sound. Um, and we showed that individuals um, who are normal have, as we'd expect, around 100 milliseconds, but children who are deletion carriers have over a 20 to 30 millisecond delay in that perception of sound. So it's not as if their hearing is problematic, but it's a cortical problem. And it's not surprising to me, but was interesting to, to discover that those individuals also have significant language problems. And that the degree of language impairment correlates with how severe that, that delay is in the perception of sound in the auditory cortex. And again, that was my collaborators at, at CHOP in Philadelphia who were doing this with us were only able to see in autism a five millisecond delay, but by using a genetically homogeneous group of volunteers, they saw this much larger robust delay and now potentially have an angle to think about treating them. Okay, I think I'm going to skip that over. Um, just in, in closing, so, you know, not only is, is the field moving forward very rapidly in terms of coming up with diagnoses, there are lots of people who are working um, on, on novel treatments, and I've just outlined um, a couple of them here that I think are quite uh, potentially interesting. The, the two uh, neuropeptides, um, oxytocin and vasopressin, are both in clinical trials um, uh, in the U.S. Uh, looking to see how they might help kids with autism. And there's, there's some preliminary data that's suggesting that literally insufflating or, you know, administering it intranasally leads to an improvement in social cognition um, 45 minutes to an hour after, after delivery of the, of the drug. Um, and you'll be amused to know that male volunteers also get better social cognition, <laughs> but not the women. Um, and, then, and then finally, in terms of in treatments, the other one that I want to point out is that there are lots of disorders. They're rare individually, but collectively they make up a large group, um, and that they can be fixed potentially by replacing the enzyme. Um, and there are ways of getting these enzymes that are quite clever across the blood-brain barrier into the brain, and there are a number of clinical trials going on uh, right now to address that. Okay, um, so just in closing, um, genetics and some of these other platforms that I talked about, biochemical methods, um, allow us to lead to earlier and earlier diagnoses um, that will hopefully lead to earlier behavioral interventions and maybe um, even um, leading to, um, you know, precision medicine-driven treatments, um, and that, that even the... the Things that I've talked about, you know, enzyme replacement and 
you know, neuropeptide use is really just the beginning. Um, you know, uh, there's a scientist across the bay at UC Berkeley who's probably on the short list to get the Nobel Prize, uh, Jennifer Doudna, who, um, along with a couple other investigators, came up with a way to literally edit your genome, um, and people are working on that in, in cells and in animal models, um, and I think it's probably not too long before people think about doing that um, in patients who have specific genetic conditions. Um, and uh, if you have any questions, I'm uh, welcome to take them later, um, or uh, you're welcome to contact me. I left my contact information up there. And thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.